Welcome to Through the Keyhole, home of the Association of Laparoscopic Surgeons of Great Britain and Ireland podcast, putting innovation, technology and training at the heart of surgery. We want this to be a two-way dialogue, so join the conversation by emailing hello at ttkpodcast.com. Welcome to the Through the Keyhole podcast. Today, we are going to uh, explore those life hacks. Um, I'm delighted to be joined by Lucy. Hello, Lucy. Hello, Tam. And we are really honoured to have Meg Finch-Jones, who is an HPB surgeon in Bristol. And she's going to talk to us about her life, her uh, journey in surgery, and some of those top tips that perhaps not everyone tells you about uh, when you're li listening to a, a lecture on, on, on HPB surgery or colorectal surgery. It's, it's how it's actually done. Welcome to Through the Keyhole. Thank you. I'm really pleased to be here. It's fantastic to have you. And um, I, I think sometimes people uh, forget the wisdom of uh, people who've, who've actually uh, been around the block um, and, and then people try and reinvent uh, the wheel. Uh, and I think it's, it would be really interesting to know how you've dealt with some of the uh, challenges thrown at you. I mean, I, I was talking to Lucy, uh, we're ordinary people doing extraordinary jobs mm. and you may have faced challenges uh, being a woman in surgery, you may have faced challenges in your particular speciality where uh, I guess regionalization and specialization causes causes uh, tension with with district hospitals, for example. Mm. Um, and, and of course, we've been in one of the most tumultuous 20 years of medicine and surgery. So I guess you'd have to deal with all of those things. But, you know, this is Lucy's Lucy's show. She's got the questions. I'm going to let her ask them. Thank you, Anne. Well, I selected uh, Meg to talk to us today, basically because um, from my perspective as a trainee for the audience, I worked for Meg um, in the HPV department at the BRI. And I just think um, having worked for her, she brings a, a very balanced and calming influence on on a quite a highly stressful kind of situation and and specialty I think as a woman to woman she's inspiring and she's inspired me you yeah. have a lot of experience to talk to us about so thank you for joining us now just to start with what we do with everyone can you tell us a little bit about where you grew up uh what school was like med school just that period of your life really yeah. Okay. So I'm. Um, I was born in California. Uh, my parents were from the Midwest, and they moved out there shortly before I was born. I'm one of three girls. Um, my mother was a nurse, and um, my dad was uh, in computer programming in the early years when there was no such thing as a degree in computer programming. And we moved around California with his job. Um, and ended up in the Bay Area in Silicon Valley where he worked for Hewlett Packard for 25 years. Um, so that's, I did most of my school there um, from about age nine. And um, I, um, I suppose I, uh, I grew up believing that I could do anything. Um, and I discovered that not everybody, later on in life, that not everybody grows up with that um, approach to life or that 
um, maybe that kind of influence from their family. It was sort of a given that I could probably do anything I wanted to and that there was no limitations because I was a girl or a woman. Um, but I, I did discover later on in life that, that not everybody thinks that. <laughs> um, so I, um, I then um, took a slightly unusual route. Um, I, so in, in, in the States, you do an undergraduate degree and then medical school. Um, and I did my undergraduate degree in a small university in Arkansas. Um, and my degree was in uh, biblical languages. And then I did a lot of science as well so that I could take my MCAT. So biblical languages is Greek and Hebrew. And then I uh, did my medical college admission examinations and my, a bunch of science along with that. And then I went back to California for medical school. Am I going too far? Or should I keep going? No, that's perfect. Keep going. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I went to medical school in the University of Southern California, Irvine, which is in Orange County. Uh, and that's four years in the States. Um, and then um, the way that uh, surgical training works in the States is that, oh, so take a little step back. I didn't think I wanted to be a surgeon when I went to medical school. I thought I wanted to be a pediatrician. Um, I thought I wanted to go do third world medicine. I can't call it third world anymore, but at that time you still called it third world. So, um, and then I, um, a few things happened in medical school. I, when I did my pediatrics rotation, the pediatricians that I worked alongside didn't really seem as enthusiastic about their job. And there wasn't as much teamwork as I'd expected. And there wasn't that sort of camaraderie and it felt more like a day job than a vocation. Um, and when I did surgery, it was completely different. It was teamwork. It was exciting. It was interesting. I, would, I liked being in theatre. I never even thought about that. Um, and, and then also I, we did some intensive care and I thought that was interesting as well. And that was, that was quite linked into surgery in the States rather than um, anesthesia. And, um, and then also at the same time, I did a, an elective uh, in Nigeria and realized that I wasn't sure whether I wanted to do um, third world medicine, at least not on my own. And I didn't really have a partner that was interested in doing that at that stage. So I found myself applying for surgical programs. Um, and I, I've always been quite interested in cancer. I, my sister uh, had a sarcoma at quite a young age around that time. And it, it made me, and she's, she's cured, um, but it made me think, yeah, I think I want to do something to do with cancer. So, shall I carry on? Yeah, so when, um, I'm really interested in the biblical mm. um, studies. Yeah. Um, do you think that primary degree has, has changed your outlook compared to uh, some of us who've, who've gone straight from school to university and, and got, got in on the treadmill straight away? Um, yeah, possibly. I think I, I mean, one of the things is I was... Um, so I was quite motivated by my faith at that stage. And I was thinking about being a missionary. That was the third world thing. And um, I, but I was also really interested in languages. So I did Spanish sort of at the equivalent of A-level in school and still speak Spanish. And there's a lot of chance to do that in California as well. So to practice that. So I, yeah, I think I, uh, in a lot of different ways, it was an important experience for me. It's it's a lot of, it, it's a lot about understanding the truth behind a text, about understanding context, about how communication isn't always literal, 
um, about understanding historical context and where different people might be coming from and where the writer might be coming from. So, um, yeah, I think it was really good to have something completely different before I went did medicine, definitely. I think I think that's really interesting, isn't it? Because because a lot of um, our I'm sorry about the dog in the background. Um, a, a lot of failures um, in our field, whether it's communicating with colleagues, uh, communicating with patients, um, uh, you know, or, or within the team in, in theatre, for example, there's so much subtle nuance that that we forget. And sometimes we're we're in this pressure cooker atmosphere that we we tend to to react and respond rather than perhaps ask the question why. Um, it's very yeah. very interesting your your outlook. What what do you feel, Lucy, about your training? So you're much closer to to the other, having gone through the ringer, as it were, and and um, you know on a treadmill of training. Would you value some time out to do something else? Yeah, I think it it definitely made me, um, you know, it's like I, I basically was very black and white about, I was like, now I'm traveling. I'm not thinking about that part of my character. And then I came back and did a couple of years, a teaching year, two fellow years. People say this all the time. We all, to get into medical school, you have to be good at 15 different things, like very good at that. And yeah then you suppress that forevermore when you're when you're because people say you've got to be able to still do exercise and things like that but it's so hard when you finish a whipples and you're like I can't go and go for a run right now I'm exhausted <laughs> and I say to people now who ask me like f f2s and f1s I say like go away and have a think about it live a little bit um because the later you get on the more you feel like well I've I'm, I'm good at doing an inguinal hernia now. If I go and take two years out, then I'll forget how to do an inguinal hernia. You know, you, you start to build up your skills and it's difficult to let them go once you've started it. But yeah, I think when you say, Meg, that you're motivated by your faith and you were thinking about doing a, being a missionary, how has that um, carried on into your current practice? So I think, so my faith is still a big part of my life. Um, and I, but, and I think, um, but things have evolved quite a lot, um, but as they do in any part of your life. Um, so um, I think um, it is interesting to think back to how that sort of, you know, uh, like studying something to try to understand it, where scripture or whatever is one thing. Um, and then it, and I was probably a little bit of an introvert at that stage. And I'm probably still is my basic personality type. In fact, my Myers-Briggs personality type is definitely an introvert. But um, I've learned, I would say, probably in the last sort of seven, eight years, learned a lot more about how big a difference your interaction with colleagues, with managers, with other people in the healthcare system, with patients, how much of an impact you can have about how with in terms of how you relate to people and how actually I've, I've actually think that I probably learned a little bit how to harness my introvert personality in terms of being a good listener and how listening and really I guess it's the same thing it's really trying to get under and understand things and understand where other people are coming from and their perspective and I guess it is a little bit that same kind of trying to get in underneath a text or or whatever or doing research because I did research as well um, putting sort of pouring that into understanding the people that you're working with 
and the, the pressures and the things that are tugging on them and influencing their decision making and affecting uh, how they work as a team member and how that might influence safety. I think it's been that's been a really interesting and useful learning process for me. I've, I've found that um, as I've matured through my surgical career, mm. um, you know, in terms of performance and outcome and what, what we really want, which yeah. is a really good outcome for our patients, um, you see that, you know, I started off as a consultant being able to do laparoscopic colorectal surgery, and that was my thing, and I was very young. Um, and, and at the age of 33, to be uh, let loose was was amazing. And, and then I realized I was so underprepared. I think I do much more now, not through technical skill, but those conversations that you're alluding to. Mm. It's very important to, to understand that for, for the surgeon. It's, it's um, not what you do. It's not what you say. It's how you make people feel. And for patients, mm. Mm. it's so important. Yeah. Yeah. I think it is. And I think, and I, and I think I, I, I've, I think in the last few years in particular, I mean, I think I've always had a reasonable reputation with the trainees, um, but I think, you know, with the changes in training and the way that training is designed so that we take more time with supervising and do, do things more consciously than when I started, I think. And also the trainees have probably less experience when they come to the start of their surgical training. I think, uh, um, yeah, that's another area where we're really sort of standing back and using those listening skills and um, and and trying to, to to think and also at my stage when I'm so much further on try to think back to you know how it was when I was at that level can be really valuable I can think of uh, once in a while okay this is gonna sound a bit negative but once in a while a trainee might ask a question and you just think oh my goodness what do you not know that or a trainee might might decide to do something or might do something during an operation that you're just thinking don't do that don't do that and then you think and then I have to stop and think I was once that trainee and somebody was really patient with me um and and I was so um that's a really useful process as well is to, is to I, go I think that me. patience is is really important and giving time is so important and, and you know as senior uh, clinicians we're probably not given enough of that but I'm also encouraged. You said it might be slightly negative. I don't think it is. I think that's just it's acknowledging um, the reality of how we feel. And sometimes we suppress those things. But in terms of doing something about it, I think, you know, the ability to have these blended learning methods, to have videos uh, uh, saying before you go into my operation, you know, you can do a TikTok. And, you know, in a minute, you say you need to know these key points of the operation so that you're not asked a, a, a silly question, which actually, um, in terms of your mental focus, if, you're, if something like that happens, your concentration is completely thrown because you start having those intrusive thoughts of, yeah, that's annoying. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know, Lucy, have you been on the other end of it? <laughs> Well, yeah, I, well, I feel like I have, and probably, actually, I have with Meg. <laughs> she's really great. <laughs> because the question that you asked her? <laughs> I'm interested. You, you like, no, not, I, well, I just remember one time I used a swab on a stick, and I was, like, swabbing, and HPB is very, you know, intricate vascular at times, and it was like, we, and you just said, no, actually, I don't like using that in my operation. Can we just use the suction? And it was fine. It was literally fine. And um, 
don't know that until you learn. I think I just mm. I can't emphasize you probably both train people in this anyway, but the use of how you how people say things. I'm very sensitive to that. Um, and that's actually it's I'm finding that a challenge is is um, some people can say exactly the same thing but in a different way and some people it hurts and some people it doesn't it's fine so yeah it's really interesting I think it's um I've been listening I don't know if either of you listen to Brene Brown but um she um talks a lot about shame obviously is one of her big things and I think that there's a there's a long tradition of shaming people and that just has to go you know and but it's built into some of the language and we have to change that yeah so the other thing I wanted to selfishly talk about is HPB because um, it's it's kind of a dilemma for in my head at least if you want to do upper GI you know have you got what it takes to do HPB and mm-hmm. so I wanted to ask you a little bit about um, so you wanted to do cancer surgery but it could have been colorectal it could have been esophagastric it could have been anything but how did you end up wanting to do HPB specifically? So my route was again before some established things, but so basically I started a training program in California and it's a five year run through where from your F1 year equivalent, you're actually doing surgery, surgical rotate, you're you're starting a surgical training at that stage. You are older, so I guess you're a little bit more mature than the average student age here, someone starting an F foundation year, for example. Um, And I was exposed a little bit to... um, bitter obstruction and that kind of thing but not to major HPV surgery but I just I ended up doing a project and I thought this is really interesting um why don't why aren't we doing all this big surgery to remove cholangiocarcinomas and all kinds of things it seems like people are doing it elsewhere um and I then um I then took two years out to do some research um, at the NIH which was um immunotherapy cancer related lab research um, and then I ended up switching training programs while I was there uh, for personal reasons and finished up my, and actually this is really, this is really crazy. I, they allowed me to count one of my lab research years as a clinical year. So I did my full general surgical training in four year, four clinical years from the time I left medical school, which is completely mad. Uh, of course, I needed to do a fellowship at that stage for multiple reasons, but I'd always planning, planned to do surgical oncology kind of thing so I hadn't probably completely decided on HPV at that point Um, but during my last year um, as what you call a chief resident in the states I won a little traveling fellowship to go visit a unit somewhere in the world that was doing something different and I went to Edinburgh um, to the HPV unit there to learn about laparoscopic ultrasound because it was quite a new thing there and I thought it was really interesting and then I just did a full week of HPV um a, a liver transplant and everything and I got re- and that that was it that was what made my light bulb moment I thought I've got to do this so I then was talking to James Garden who was the uh, person I wanted to see um he and I were trying to work out a way for me to go back there and then I ended up going back there as a fellow and sort of leaving my my surgical oncology training program and um and then just it's sort of full on HPB for a couple of years so basically from that point I as I started doing it I just thought yep this is amazing I'm going to carry on doing this mm. so that's that's how I decided by having the experience of doing it um yeah I, I don't know did I did I sort of sit down and think through logical reasons why I should or shouldn't do HPB no because <laughs> that wasn't my personality um, I was quite a driven person. I didn't, um, obviously, I, I, so my 
family is in California. I was on the other side of the country in Washington, D.C., and then Buffalo, New York. So then I've moved sort of across the world because of my job. And I know that's not necessarily what a lot of people do. And I'm not necessarily saying it's the most healthy thing for a lot of people to do either. Uh, and I... I did know I wanted to sort of eventually get married and have a family, but I just kept telling myself that would work out somehow at some point. <laughs> so um, I didn't actually probably include that in the equation very much. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it's probably not a great source of guidance in terms of your whole life picture, but I guess I did it because I, I loved it uh, and enjoyed it. Um, and that's probably, and I, I like a challenge. So I think that you, I think it is, it is a high risk specialty. It is a specialty that requires long operations. Um, it is a bit, it's a competitive specialty. Um, and so I guess you have to, you have to be up for that, I guess. Um, but I think some of that competitiveness is changing um, and it's becoming more teamwork orientated, which is definitely the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. I think it's really interesting because um, you and I um, uh, were able to explore our curiosity in our surgical specialities. Um, I, I was nearly an orthopedic surgeon, but, you know, changed mm. quickly. Um, and, and I think, uh, so for Lucy, you, you're making decisions that are almost sort of binary, black and white, um, uh, which is, I think, quite hard without having that time to spend uh, you know, in, in perhaps some different specialities and, and everything is um, proficiency assessed, which is right. Um, but I don't think people take enough uh, note of how skills are transferable. Mm. And, um, you know, John Wooden, who I'm sure you, you know, Meg, um, uh, the NBA coach, you know, he, he would always choose the person for his team that had the best attitude, not necessarily the best player. And I think that's so important in, in surgery. Um, and, and I think that's a subtle change that's happened over the last 20, 25 years. Uh, you know, and, and, you know, which system is better? Who knows? Yeah, go on, Lucy. I'm finding that the slight difference between talking to, because we've talked to 10 people who are all consultants now, haven't we, in this series. And the question of how did you end up doing it is always that you ended up doing a, doing a rotation in it and loved it the answer is always that and um I think it's there's a difference though now because it seems like all of you back then you were all working incredibly hard um you were all really high achieving you all had um very very high you know you worked very long hours um and their rotors were different then the difference that we find is that like I guess there are now different types of there are you could be a benign upper GI surgeon in a small hospital and just do gallbladders um and that to me is quite a nice life and then you can be a you know a, a someone who works in a trauma center doing liver transplants is on the is on the um rotor to retrieval rotor so like it's and also there's been a lot of narrative about quality of life and things so I think which is good, which is really, really good. Um, so, but my, cause the, my thought process is more about kind of, would I be suited to HPB? Would I be suited to esophagogastric? Would I, be, would I be suited to a benign kind of job? Um, but I think we get a bit more autonomy over the actual decision 
whilst I think a lot of other consultants just sort of fell into what they most in, enjoyed, which is also one way of doing it, a different way of doing it. I think what I would say a little bit about, and I might be wrong, but for, this might just be true of me, but I think the suitability thing, it, I think it might have something to do with your personality as well. So what I'm saying is, and I'm not saying all oh, people in a specific particular specialty need to have the same personality. In fact, I apparently have one of the least common personality types <laughs> in surgery. Um, I'm an INFP if anybody does Myers-Briggs. <laughs> but, um, but what I think that probably for HPB, sort of absolutely loving what you do has to be really important to you Mm. you know whereas for some people it might be that what you do has to be good but it doesn't have to be really all-encompassing you know what I mean Mm. Um, and that some people are have an approach to life that is more balanced perhaps than what I've got um I think there's there's a lot of research out there for um how we manage our people and if you let people do um you know 20 percent of their time you allow them to do what what's their passion mm-hmm. the rest of the 80 percent they'll do what the organization wants then you're 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 pretty um uh, much guaranteed that that person will find meaning because i think that's what it is yeah, it's, you know what what you do does that um have importance and significance because you know in medicine is brilliant because you can find and surgery is brilliant because you can find something that you'll fall into the anxiety is that you'll get it wrong but i don't think people get it wrong i think we we just adapt to 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 the circumstance um i think it's fascinating but i think it's you know i i think that's a real challenge for trainees because mm. there's so much uncertainty and and of course uh, we're talking about lots of hours and our trainees for the last two years were redeployed with with a huge amount of uncertainty so, so Meg I'm, I'm fascinated by um you know you you've had um a, a, an amazing career and and you've managed all these really exciting things did you get to travel abroad Yes, well, not as much as I would like, probably. So obviously, this is abroad for me from where I grew up. But um, I'm not going to say it's third world, even though we're this not. Is now home. <laughs> this is now home. So I didn't have long periods of time of traveling. Um, I So I've only had sort of short periods. When I, I did my elective in medical school um, was in Nigeria, like I said. But I didn't take off and travel for a year, like a lot of um, yeah. kids do. So... Uh, yeah, still lots more exploring to do. Um, seen a fit, reasonable amount of Europe. I've I've not done a lot of Asia, just the typical Thailand for my honeymoon kind of thing. And um, I'd like to do that probably on my bucket list. And I'd probably like to see more of Africa and actually South America. So I've been to Central America. Um, I did that sort of in a, a summertime thing when I was in university. Great. So you've obviously still a few things on the bucket list in terms of travel. In terms of your um, your career so far, one of the things we like to ask, sort of highlights of your career, if you can think of any moments that you that have stuck in your brain as real highlights, um, and and then any regrets, then also feel free to share. But definitely the highlights that would be great. Okay, well, getting appointed in Bristol was the highlight for me. I 
I'd done uh, sort of two years in Edinburgh and then I did actually another two years in Liverpool as well, which was mostly HPV, but a little bit of other things. And um, around that time, I did actually apply for quite a few HPV jobs, although Bristol was the one I wanted. Um, and a lot of the other jobs had internal candidates, but they were really good practice so that I was quite relaxed when I came for my Bristol interview. So, so that was good. Um, in the lead up to that, I was the, probably one of the first people to go through CSER as well, um, because part of my training wasn't in the UK, uh, but I also did my ex exit exam around the same time, which was an interesting challenge for me because the examination system in the US and the UK are completely different. Mm -hmm. um, but when I started in Bristol, I was, I was probably the first full-time HPV surgeon in the Southwest that did both liver and pancreas. There hadn't been anybody, there, there were people that did some, but it wasn't their full-time job. Um, they did a little, so Derek Alderson, who was professor, is, was here and appointed me, did a little bit, but he was really an esophagastric surgeon. Mm -hmm. um, there was a professor who was a pancreatic surgeon down in Plymouth, but was the first person that did a, only HPV as my full-time job. Wow. So that was quite a challenge, yeah. Mm. And in terms of your, your operating, do you... <laughs> Do you, does it ever get old doing a Whipple? Does it, because it's interesting when you talk to people who my other half is not a medic and yeah. um, people have heard of a Whipple from House or from Grey's Anatomy. <laughs> um, yeah. And it's a complex, it's lengthy. Um, yeah. It's a marathon. How has it changed like intraoperatively, your calm levels, your, are there any points that you, do you ever get bored? <laughs> you know, oh. Uh, How do you feel in the operation? So, okay. Um, so I don't get, I definitely don't get bored. Um, in fact, I've always, I mean, I think that's one thing about doing sort of really interesting, a major surgery is that people, you know, people who don't do it or who are, they just think, how can you stand there for that length of time and do that? And the thing is that time flies when you're actually really concentrating on something. Mm. I think there is an adrenaline aspect to it as well, because it is, it is higher risk surgery. And, you know, you can, <clears throat> You can get bleeding, obviously. Um, you can mistakenly tie off a branch of an artery to the liver. I've seen it. I've seen it. So I've seen someone tie off the common hepatic artery before. It's not impossible because you know it's it's everyone's anatomy is different. Also, things are evolving, so things have become more radical. Um, and um, and and also, people are scrutinizing outcomes more, which is really good. That's the right thing. But it also makes you feel a little bit like you're being watched <laughs> as mm. well. Um, so so it's dealing with that aspect of it. Um, sort of that sort of criticism of the person that's not even there is, is, a, is a thing. Mm -hmm. um, but um, but it is really interesting. It's it's. Um, it's good teaching. I think one of the dilemmas I have when I do a Whipple is how much do I get the, let, allow the training to do and when is it the time to take over? Um, and I, I always have that dilemma, um, mm. which is a, obviously very common. Um, and I think that's a little bit of a source of stress for me as well, because I think oh, I really need to train. And then I think, okay, but is it right for me to carry on training? Should I just take over? And that's mm. just another element. Um, but that's all good. That's, that's <laughs> part of it. Um, I really enjoy um, the tra trainees more and more than I ever did. I, did, I feel like I developed more of a, of a camaraderie and working relationship with trainees and, and you know, doing, it, doing the operation together is a really good source of, of training and talking through things.
Mm-hmm. Um, I definitely don't get bored. It is a long operation and tiring. Um, so my legs complain. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then you do worry a lot after a Whipple if the patient has a, a soft pancreas and a small pancreatic duct. You worry a lot about complications. So. Yeah. And that um, usually lasts for at least a couple of weeks. So every time you've done a Whipple, you're going to have this sort of raised anxiety level for at least a couple of weeks afterwards. Yeah, It's definitely a noticeable difference. If you don't have a patient in hospital that's had one, I definitely notice a complete difference in my sort of stress levels. Mm. And how do you, everyone deals with complications in their own way? How, how do you deal with complications? Do you do anything in particular um, to help? You mean on, a, on a personal level, you mean how, how coping with them? So I think, uh, oh, that's a good question. Um, it's probably evolved. I probably, yeah, I probably, there, there are times when you sort of try to be a bit hands off and that doesn't really work for me and that works for some people. I feel like the more I know about what's going on with the patient, the more relaxed I can be um, because then I'm feeding into what's going on with that patient and, um if, if the patient gets a complication, I think talking to my colleagues is a really useful thing because I think it's quite easy to, we're, we're all really self-critical and we're all a little bit paranoid as surgeons about what could happen because we know really bad things can happen mm-hmm. um, and sometimes unexpectedly. So um, I think it's your colleagues can be good levelers because we are, we often um, in this kind of specialty will, will sort of be really super self-critical and not balanced about you know this could happen to anybody um uh and that the point isn't actually that the point is just being in the right frame of mind to take the next step and then also when there is a step to be taken talking that through with colleagues um is really helpful and that that's a transition that i i didn't find easy because for a long time i didn't always have that mm. um and i sort of had to had to sort of do make those decisions more on my own um mm. but it's definitely much healthier to do it with other people we will finish by just asking you the same question that we ask every guest um a bit more uh, less about hpb but just more about you and that is um do you have a favorite book and would you like to share it with us it doesn't have to be medical <laughs> i quite like biographies so mm-hmm. um one of my favorite biographies is Long Walk to Freedom, Nelson Mandela. It's just so inspiring, you know, to, to what he what he went through and the change that what he did created. So, yeah. Brilliant. I'll have to give that a, a listen myself. Brilliant. Thanks, Meg, so much. So just to summarise, um, I've been talking to Meg Finch-Jones, who's a consultant HPB surgeon in Bristol. And we've talked a little bit about HPB surgery, about Meg's journey within it, and also about how she's dealt with um, complications, stresses, teaching, training, and life as, a, as an experienced consultant HPV surgeon. So thank you very much. And we'll just say, listeners, we're just, we're at the moment trying to get some feedback about what you want us to include in the next series of Through the Keyhole. So please do get in touch. And we look forward to hearing from you. So thank you. joining through the keyhole you will find more interesting podcasts in this series as well as online resources from the als gbi at www.alsgbi.org